This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Oh My Dollar, a personal finance show with a dash of glitter. Dealing with money can be scary and stressful. Here we give practical, friendly advice about money that helps you tackle the financial overwhelm. I'm your host, Lillian Kerbake. I'm your other host, Will Romy. Let's talk about money. Uh, today's going to be listener questions, potpourri. Listener Eva asks, do I have to get disability insurance, though? Seems annoying, but also very capital A adult and responsible and a good idea. <laughs> uh, well, Eva, yes. The answer is yes. You do. You should probably get disability insurance. Uh, I actually followed up with Eva on Twitter, and she mentioned she's self-employed, which makes this even more important to do. Um, and that's quite simply because you have nothing to fall back on um, if you are do become disabled, if you are self-employed for your income. Obviously, we're a big fan of emergency funds on the show. Um, but disability insurance is designed to help you replace income if you become injured or sick and cannot work. So it's really excellent for self-employed folks. Um, many people think that workers' comp will cover them. If you're self-employed, that's definitely not true because you're not paying into workers' comp. So you just don't have access to workers' comp. Yeah, you just, it's just uh-huh. not a thing. You don't get it. Um, and the majority of disability claims are actually due to illness, not injury anyway. So workers' comp only covers injury on the job um, or illness related to the job. So like if you're a coal miner and you get coal miner's lung, that is covered under workers' comp. But having a long-term autoimmune disorder or a complicated pregnancy, that is not covered by workers' comp. And majority of disability claims are actually due to illness unrelated from work on the job. Um, The other thing to say is that um, majority of paid maternity benefits in this country do not actually come from the employer, and they certainly don't come from the government. What they come from is short-term disability, um, which quite often employers do provide to you free of charge, but it's not actually the employer paying it out. It pays out a portion of your income, usually 50 or 60 percent, if you are short-term disabled, which is pregnancy, apparently. Um, (laughs) So One way to look at it. Uh, yeah. And so this is really, really helpful, especially if you have a complicated pregnancy that requires bed rest or if you get a C-section, which is a major surgery and requires recovery time. Plus, just pushing another human out of you is hard on your body. And so doing short term disability, if you're self-employed or otherwise employed, is an excellent way to replace income if either you have a child and if you get ill for some other reason. Um One thing to look for is there are two different types of disability insurance policies. One is called short-term and one is called long-term. The most important, in my opinion, is long-term disability insurance. Um, Your emergency fund, once it's in place, will often cover that short-term, although, like I mentioned, it's really great for um, maternity leave. 
But if you're aiming for covering yourself, if you truly cannot go back to work long term, there's two things you need to know when you're looking for disability insurance, elimination period and term. Mm-hmm. And the elimination period is how long um, before it starts to pay out. And the longer the elimination, you're lo- the lower your cost. So it's almost like your deductible in health insurance? Yeah, it's really similar. Yeah. So if you go for something like 180-day elimination period, that's six months, you'll pay way lower premiums. Um, and that means, though, that you're going to be able to co- need to cover the gap if you get sick or injured for six months before they start paying out. The other thing to know is that even though they pay a lower percentage of your income, you'll need to be able to, one, survive on less than your full-time income. But the other thing to know is that it that payout is usually tax-free. So if you normally make 100% of your income, you know, 15 <laughs> to 25% of it goes to taxes. Um, so you're really only living on 75% of your gross income. Oh, I see. So okay. if you're getting a 60% disability payout, but you're not paying any taxes on it, then you really only have to make up the 15% that I hope that you're saving for retirement. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully that makes sense. Um, the, the term is how long disability insurance will pay out for. Short-term disability usually covers three to six months, and quite often it's used in combination with long-term disability. The longer the term, the more expensive the insurance is. You can get coverage for one year, five years, 10 years, or all the way until retirement age. Um, I usually recommend five years or more if you can afford it, simply because it can take years to retrain into a new profession or qualify for permanent disability from the government. Which Okay, and that's a whole other topic. That, which is a whole other topic, and we talked a little bit on the Social Security episode about that, um, But and I'd love to do that, but I actually think we should probably bring in a disability lawyer to yeah. talk about and it, because it's complicated. Covered, I think we covered this topic more on the disability episode. Yeah, we, we dove really deep into it. So, Eva, if you're looking for disability insurance, so if you're self-employed, you should literally just Google self-employed disability insurance. Um, and look around. There are people that will be clamoring to provide you with insurance because they make money when they sell you an insurance policy. It's hard to give you a rule of thumb because it it's based on your own medical history and your income and everything, how much you're going to be paying for it. So I can't even really give you a ballpark. But my biggest recommendation is shop around. Usually you want to go to a broker that um, can sell you multiple types of insurance because they're going to be able to find you the best deal as opposed to going to someone that is housed in a single agency. So if you go to someone that is at insurancecompany.com, then they're only going to be usually, not always, but usually be able to sell you insurancecompany.com's insurance. The other thing to know is that the average insurance broker is in the business for a really short period of time, like 18 months. And everybody and their brother is authorized to sell insurance, it feels like. Um, And so just going to the nice lady from church who sells insurance isn't necessarily your best bet. Um, (laughs) Because if you end up having to, you know, make a claim on that, it's likely that person isn't even going to be selling insurance anymore by the time you make a claim. So look for someone who's been in the business for a long time. Uh, Usually that person's going to be better informed. And you're not going to have any of that weird feelings where you're like, ah, this family member that sells insurance really wants me to buy from them. And I feel this weird pressure. (laughs) You know, just just say that you want to keep business and pleasure separate. So. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Our next question comes from Rebecca. Rebecca asks, I listened to your life insurance podcasts. Awesome. And I also love that you often address mental health issues. I have a question. Do you have any recommendations for people with mental health issues who have trouble getting life insurance? Even though whole life is terrible, is it sometimes the best option if you're having trouble getting term insurance? So I'm not a fan of whole life at all, which I've talked about on previous episodes. 
there is a very, very rare case for extremely high net individuals with dependents who are already maxed out on all their tax advantage retirement accounts that want to take advantage of the tax shelter for whole life. But that's a super rare case. So addressing this question. Um, so I actually, you know, went back with Rebecca and I asked her some questions. This is a friend, family friend of hers um, who was hospitalized five years ago for mental health and otherwise is stable and has stable income. And they were able to get a whole life insurance quote, but they haven't been able to find a term life one. But what I will say is usually if you can't get whole life insurance, you also can't get term insurance. And the opposite is true as well. So if they've been approved for a whole life policy, you can probably find someone that will approve you for term. It's the exact same underwriting process for both types of policy because they're considering the same risk factors. So there's rarely an option where you can get one but not the other. A lot of folks feel pressured to get whole life by the person selling around the policy because they make a ton more money from whole life policies. Because you're paying your whole life. But, yeah. I mean, well, you're paying a lot. You're paying a lot. Like a, a, a whole life policy is almost $300 a month quite often versus a term life policy that might be 150 bucks a year. Um, so a lot of folks feel pressured to get whole life by the person selling them a policy. But if whole life is a an option at one agent, you can probably shop around and find a term policy that is available. One thing is if someone you know is uninsurable for mental health or other illness reasons, like I have rheumatoid arthritis, so I'm pretty much impossible to insure. One thing you can do without any kind of major inspection is mortgage life insurance, which will pay off your mortgage in the event of a death. Um, it's a lot more expensive than just regular term life insurance, but at least the mortgage will be paid off in the event of a death. And so this can be a good option and usually doesn't involve any sort of illness um, illness evaluation. Another thing huh. you can do is one of those automatic issue type policies. When you like open a checking account, often they'll send you this like annoying, weird, spammy looking piece of mail that says, Hey, you can get a $10,000 life insurance policy. Yes, I've seen those. Yeah, totally. Like you open a credit union account and they immediately send you one of these things. Um, I'm not usually a huge fan of these, but if your relative gets a few of these, then you could have a decent payout in the event of death, like 50K or something. Not yeah. the same as a term insurance <laughs> policy. Um, it's not the same, but because it's automatic issue, they're not going to have to go through that underwriting that looks into it. And so it can be a good way to take care of family. And you can get a couple of them. You can have a couple different checking accounts, open them and get these insurance policies and then close the accounts if you want. Huh. If you really can't find an agent that will insure your family member, there's probably a number of years that can pass where they can get a policy again. So if you say they're relatively stable and the hospitalization was five years ago, usually it'll be another couple years. Eight to ten is quite common. It might be best to focus on savings for them, um, get an automatic issue policy or a mortgage insurance policy, and wait things out until they qualify for term. But I would not recommend going for a whole life um, simply because they had a five-year-ago hospitalization. You should be able to find a term if you can find a whole life. Cool. Awesome. Okay. That's a lot about insurance. Listener Josh asks... I'm proud of myself for not losing a gift of a savings bond for 30 years. Only my credit union won't handle it and claims most credit unions won't. Do I really have to join a commercial bank to cash this thing that, now mature, is worth $69 before I pay taxes on it? P.S. Are small quantity paper savings bonds rarely purchased today and what are similar alternatives to encourage savings through gifts to kids without putting them in my shoes? <laughs> Excellent question, Josh. I actually had to do research on this because I wasn't sure. Um, 
savings bonds for maybe our younger listeners who have never encountered them before are these like pieces of paper that you get and then you hold on to for you know 30 years and then you cash them out for slightly more than they were purchased for um they are quite a common gift if you have grandparents from the greatest generation uh but you know younger kids i think are going to encounter them less and less um the awesome part is that one, according to the U.S. Department of Treasury, 95% of bonds are cashed at local banks and credit unions. So your credit union is not correct in saying that most credit unions don't take them. However, in the case a local bank won't cash your bond, you can actually mail in your unsigned bond with this federal form 1522, um, (laughs) which also has to have a certified signature, but your credit union should definitely do that for you because they have a notary on staff guaranteed. Um... And you could just mail it to the U.S. Department of Treasury in Minneapolis, and they'll mail you back a check. <laughs> I didn't know the Department of the Treasury was in Minneapolis. There's a bunch of them. Okay. So it's the Federal <laughs> Reserve, but the one who handles savings bond is in Minneapolis. Um, the form and the address t- to mail it to, you can find on treasurydirect.gov slash INDIV, which is a really lovely... Indiv. <laughs> Indiv. Um you can just go to treasurydirect.gov and they'll answer most of your questions. Um, to answer your other question, a way to encourage saving through gifts to your kids is through a 529 account. Um, or if they have earned income, so if they're older, a Roth IRA. Um, so you can actually, like, I love to you know, encourage both work ethic and Roth IRAs. And um, <laughs> if they have any earned income for the year, they can use a Roth IRA up to 5500 or the total of their earned income for the year, whichever is smaller, um, as a savings vehicle. And the cool part about Roth IRAs is they can pull that money out for higher education or for purchasing their first home with no penalty. And if they're not making that much because it's just a summer job, they'll probably be below the amount at which they're taxed. Um, currently, the standard deduction is 6500 but it's actually going to be going up to 12000 a year. Um, thanks to the Republicans. <laughs> and because of that, everything is tax-free. So the Roth is perfect because, remember, it's a post-tax vehicle. Um, so that's really cool. But they have to have earned income. Obviously, this doesn't work if someone just had a newborn who is not working uh, unless they're like a baby model. And um, they can't use a Roth IRA. But a 529, the second a child is born, you can set up a 529. And the cool part about this is that you can have a 529 and you can designate a beneficiary for it. It's an educational savings account, but you can change that beneficiary if you want. So you have another kid you like more. You have another kid you like more or just like a kid decides not to go to college, um, which is a really excellent, you know, like, oh, they decided not to do go to college. You can use it on a bunch of um, educational-esque expenses that aren't um, explicitly college too, like trade schools, vocational schools, books uh for like you know apprenticeship programs stuff like hmm. that and um, even like work boots so if this sounds a little more versatile ap- electrician apprentice or whatever um so it is pretty flexible but the really flexible part is that you can change the beneficiary so it's great if you know you have a nephew and then you have a different nephew you like more uh <laughs> <laughs> um but uh i think 529 accounts can be a really good way unfortunately they're administered at the state level and different states have different awesomeness of 529 plans so it's worth looking in at how useful that 529 is <laughs> oh yeah because i remember you saying that some can only be used at certain state uh, schools yeah like prepaid places. tuition and stuff the federal guidelines for them are a lot better than some states implement hmm. so and this actually is a perfect lead-in to our next question from debbie debbie says can you please help me navigate college savings slash 529 plans i have three children 11 9 and 9 
and contribute to an Oregon 529 plan for each of them. I always choose the age-based investment strategies and admit to not reviewing them very carefully. Should I leave them in the age-based models? Or choose mutual funds specifically? Or a mix? I don't know what the best strategy is. Debbie, you're doing it right. Uh, the age-based models are excellent because that annual rebalancing that you need to do is done automatically. And generally, you don't have a ton of investment options in most 529 accounts. Like, they're not like a huge variety of investment. The big thing you do want to check for is the expense ratios on the funds available to you. This is the same thing that we've talked about before in your Roth IRA. Um, so ideally, you want something lower than 0.4% expense ratio. Um, you can often just Google the age-based models and see what funds they have you in and see what the expense ratios are. Also, it's possible that you can't get a super low expense ratio where you have your 529. You can move them around um, if you want to find cheaper, you know, lower expense ratio options. Generally, the way age-based models um, and for DIY investing goes is that you start with more in stocks for your younger children. And then each year, um, you'll shift the bond, the portfolio to more bonds after about age 13, because the assumption is that they'll go to college around age 18 or 19. So not unlike retirement, where you're moving Very to similar, more, except huh. a shorter time scale, right? Because usually your working career is longer than 18 years. Um, Great, sort so. of an, 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 an anti-retirement in a way. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Although next week we're going to talk about early retirement on the show. Uh, <laughs> um, so most recommendations say 10% uh, stocks or less by the time your child is age 19. Um, one thing I will note is that when the economy is doing really well, long-term bonds tend to do very poorly. And this is simply because we tend to have more invested in the stock market when things are doing well. Right now, we're doing really well. Five years ago, the economy was not doing super hot. Um, so when your kids are really close to college, if the, um, if the market is doing really well, if they're 17 or 18, you might want to consider looking at cash-based savings, um, like a saving interest-based plan. Um, I looked it up, and California's right now is just a investment plus interest, and it's giving you like 1% or something like that. But essentially, you want the 529 to be really close to like an interest-bearing um, savings account when yep. your kid is going to college next year. Um, you don't want that value to plunge dramatically right as your kid is getting ready to go to college, right? Because you want to have a good estimate. Um, right, of the money available. Yeah, exactly. Um, so excellent job, Debbie, saving while your kids are still elementary age. Um, one thing I do want to mention to any parents looking into 529 plans is I want to make sure you have your own retirement savings plan prioritized prior to saving for your kids' education. And I know this seems really hard because you want to make sure that your kids have a really great shot in life and you want to think of your kids first and foremost. And some folks just convince themselves, oh, I'll just work forever because <laughs> you want your kid to go to college more than you really care about, you know, retiring, which is like a mythical thing. Um, but this is what I want to say. There are no scholarships for retirement, but there are scholarships <laughs> for college. Plus, your kid might not even decide to go to college as well. So please make sure you're putting away at least 15 percent of your annual income for retirement before you start putting money into the 529. Even if it mm. feels like you're too late and your kids are too close to college, I really want you to get that benefit of that compound interest on your own retirement and your kids will have to figure it out, <laughs> right? Like you can support them in applying for scholarships, have them make it a part-time job when they're in high school, essentially applying for scholarships. Also, once your kids are working age, the Roth IRAs are a really excellent way for them to save for college as well. Um, you might be able to find a way to do some sort of bonus matching for them, where you essentially say, 
for every you know every dollar that they put in their Roth IRA towards their earned income, you will also put in a dollar up to half of their earned income for the year. Because <laughs> other than that, you you will be breaking, out of hand breaking the law. <laughs> so yeah, awesome. Um, hopefully that answers some questions about five twenty nine and all the other listener questions we had on this show. Yeah. Anything to add, Will? Uh. No. No? All right. (laughs) Much like Wayne. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) That wraps our show for today. Our producer is Will Romy, and our intro music is by Aaron Parecki. I'm Lillian Carbake, your personal finance educator and host. Thanks for listening, and till next time, remember to manage your money so it doesn't manage you. Oh My Dollar is now a weekly podcast, so you don't need to wake up at 7.30 a.m. to hear the show. Check us out on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a review. I just wanted to give an update to our listeners that your dreams have come true. We now have cat-filled personal finance merit badge stickers because I believe (laughs) that you should get a merit badge for rolling over your 401k and it should involve cats. So for two bucks, these stickers can be yours. You can go find them at ohmydollar.com slash stickers. Really? Yeah. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.